Well, good morning and a happy Easter. Well, it's great to see so many unfamiliar faces out there today. We're so glad to hear at Holy Cross a warm welcome. I hope you have already received a warm welcome here. And I'm not sure where you've come from today. Maybe you've traveled a long way and you're in town visiting friends or family. Or maybe you've just crossed one or two of our local bridges as you live in one of the many different towns that make up Berkeley County or Charleston County. If that's you, or if you live right here on Daniel Island, I wonder if you've ever heard the different, not-so-flattering names that people give to the different areas we're from. Anyone heard these? For instance, maybe you've heard that Mount Pleasant gets called Mount Plastic. Ever heard that one? Maybe. I see some nods out there, perhaps because it's seen as an imitation of real Charleston. I'm not sure. Or West Ashley is called West Trashley. Not particularly flattering if you're from there. Or Somerville is called Scummerville. Also not great. Uh, James Island becomes Lame Island. But perhaps the most creative, the one I'm most fond of, is North Charleston, where I have lived, actually, which becomes Up Chuck. It's beautiful, isn't it? That's beautiful. And don't worry, Daniel uh, Daniel Islanders, there is an alternative name for our town, too. Does anyone know what that is? It's a pretty clever one. They call us Denial Island. Denial Island. You see, the other folks in the Charleston area see Daniel Island as this kind of Pleasantville or Truman Show, if you've ever seen those movies, or Mayberry. In other words, a utopian setting or seemingly perfect place to live. They believe the folks who live here are living in denial of the realities of the world. What does it mean to live in denial, though? Well, I'm reminded of the story of a Japanese soldier that I heard a few years back. His name was Hiro Unada. And he hunkered down in the jungles of the Philippines for nearly three decades, refusing to believe that the Second World War had ended. Unada was sent to the small island of Lubang in the western Philippines to spy on the U.S. forces in the area during World War II. And Allied forces defeated the Japanese Imperial Army in the Philippines in the latter stages of the war, But Onada, who was a lieutenant, evaded their capture. And while most of the Japanese troops on the island withdrew or surrendered in the face of uh, oncoming American forces, Onada and a few fellow hideouts um, hid in the jungles. And they dismissed messages saying the war was over. Well, after losing his comrades to various circumstances, Onada was eventually persuaded to come out of hiding in 1974. 29 years after World War II had ended. In fact, it took his former commanding officer to come and travel to Lubang to see him, to tell him that he was released from his military duties. It was only then that in this battered old army uniform that he was wearing that Onada finally handed over his sword nearly 30 years after Japan had surrendered. Friends, this is living in denial, not just for days or weeks or months or years, but for decades, decades, not willing to accept the truth of the situation or to live in reality. And yet, if you stop and think about it, for how many of us is it the same that we too live in denial, not just for days or weeks or months or years, but for decades, 
we live in denial of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In denial of the implications of that first Easter day for our lives and for the lives of all those around us. You see, there's some truth to that name for the town that we worship in today, Denial Island. Many of the folks here and in the areas around us, including some of us in here today, are living in denial of reality. The reality that there's a much bigger story than the one we have contented ourselves with until this point in our lives. And perhaps because the historical facts and evidence are presented to us about the resurrection and we simply deny them to, tr- uh, to be true, or perhaps because we believe them to be true, but we refuse to live any differently. And what are the facts? Well, in our gospel account of the resurrection today, Luke, who is a, phys- a physician, And he tells us at the beginning of his gospel that he wants to write an orderly account of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. Well, he gives us a detailed account of what happened that first Easter morning. He doesn't want anyone to be able to dispute this. And so he's careful about being factual and precise. You can follow along if you want to on the scripture sheets or on the screens next to me. But in verses 1 through 3, he writes this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, that's Jesus' female followers, went to the tomb, taking the spices they prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You know, the first piece of evidence for the truth of the resurrection is a strange one, but it's this. It's that we first of all see that the first witnesses to it were women. And it's strange because if Luke or the apostles were trying to deceive people about Jesus' resurrection, they would not have had women be the first witnesses. You see, a woman's testimony at that time was not seen as creditable. Uh, credible. In fact, it was considered worthless in a court of law. Now, they would have changed the story to make sure that there were at least two or three men who were the first witnesses. This would have been much more believable. Well, the second piece of evidence Luke gives us is that they clearly believed that Jesus had died. You can catch that from those first few verses. And they had no reason to doubt this. You see, the women and the apostle John were there when it happened, and they saw Jesus crucified. They saw a professional executioner declare him dead. They also saw how to ensure Jesus was dead, a spear was thrust into his side, and how blood and water poured out of his side because the spear burst his heart sack. Plus, as was customary, we see that the the women were coming to put more spices on his dead body. Yes, to them, three days later, he is still dead and buried in that tomb. Well, thirdly, we see that this was foretold by Jesus. Look at what the men who we discover are angels in other accounts. Uh, Look what they say when they encounter them. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. What Jesus said would happen came true. It came true. It's all very clear in his teaching prior to his death and resurrection. Numerous times he alluded to what is going to happen. But more than this, so did the Jewish prophets for hundreds of years beforehand. And in hundreds of separate writings in the Old Testament, they foretold what was going to happen. You can go check it out for yourself. 
Well, fourthly, in Luke's account, we see the unfiltered and unflattering reaction of the disciples. Verses 9 through 11. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words to them seemed an idle tale, and they did not believe them. You know, once again, why would the apostles paint themselves in such a poor light if this was a story that they were making up? And the idle tale comment confirms or affirms what was believed about women as witnesses at that time and also affirms the truth of the story. In fact, the term idle tale is a medical term. It actually basically means they thought that they were on drugs. They were hallucinating. Well, surely they would have painted themselves in a much better light if they were making up this story. And fifthly, we see that the other disciples, uh, we see that the other disciples see this evidence too. Notice that Peter, although he thinks it's an idle tale, decides he's going to rise and run to the tomb. And then we read, he stoops and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by himself, uh, by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. You know, Peter isn't convinced by the women's idle tale, but he's also not 100% sure that this couldn't have happened. After all, he recently saw Lazarus raised from the dead by Jesus, and he's seen other people raised from the dead by Jesus. And so he quickly runs to see for himself, and as the women had said, the body's gone, and Jesus has risen from the grave. This is the evidence that Luke presents to us. But not only this, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, corroborate the evidence presented. And other scriptures also reveal to us that over 500 people saw Jesus after he was supposedly buried in a tomb. Well, so what, we might ask? If the evidence is a historical fact then what does that mean for you and for me? Well, in Acts chapter 10, our reading from the New Testament, Peter, the first apostle to see the empty tomb, lays it out. He says this, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You know, the good news of the gospel is that that first Easter, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that for all those who believe in him, there is forgiveness of sins. And anyone who fears him and who follows him is acceptable to him. See, if you haven't noticed, friends, you have a problem. I have the same problem, too. It's a sin problem. And hard as you try, you cannot fix it. Yes, you might look pretty good on the outside, and today you do look pretty good, people. Well done, all right? But if you're honest, you know that underneath, it's not so great. There's a lot of yuck on the inside, right? And heaven forbid that anyone would know your thought life or your hidden actions, And guess what? Everyone else in the room has the same problem as you. It's why we look at the world and we see just how broken it is. From wars to famines to violence at seemingly benign award ceremonies to issues closer to our home and even in our homes and in our own hearts. But now, because of the first Easter, there's freedom from sin, there's freedom from guilt, there's freedom from addictions, there's freedom from fear, there's freedom from death itself. Yes, Jesus died and rose again, that we might rise again too. He died instead of us, 
taking the punishment that we deserved and could never pay so that we might live. That's how much he loves us. So what do I do now? Well, did you notice the question that the angels asked the women when they encountered them that first Easter morning? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? It's a powerful question on so many levels. And it's a question that's still relevant to each of us today. You see, if we're honest, how many of us spend our lives seeking life to the full in things that will never quench our thirst? Idols, if you will, be they our homes, our cars, our golf carts, our relationships, our wealth, sports, having perfect bodies or a better education. Heck, we even make idols of our kids. And none of these are bad things, but they're never meant to be the thing that fulfills us and brings us true life, life everlasting. As the writer of Ecclesiastes put it, God has set eternity in our hearts. And only he can fill that God-shaped hole. John Calvin once said, our hearts are idol-making factories, but none of these idols we give ourselves to can save us. We might as well have a statue that we, maybe a stone statue in our living room that we bow down to each day. It cannot save us. But the good news is that Jesus can. If If you've not chosen to repent and believe in him, now's the time to do it. To stop denying the truth of the resurrection, not one day, not someday, but today. And it will be the greatest and the hardest decision you ever make. And if you've already done that, then hear the words of the Apostle Paul, a man who also suffered greatly for his belief that Jesus rose again. In our reading from Colossians today that Steve read, he writes, he writes this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, what Paul knew was that believing in God isn't enough. You know, even the demons believe in God. He knew that the temptation is to repent and then keep on living the same way, to live as if the gospel has no implications for your life today, to once again live in denial. And he actually writes about Christians like this elsewhere, people who say they believe in Jesus but don't live that way. In Titus 1.16 he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. You see, While the Easter story tells us he's alive, so many of us, even within the church, live as if nothing has changed. We live as if he's dead, not alive. We are perpetually carrying around great big bags of spices, if you will. Now you might be asking, well, what's the difference? Well, let me give you some contrasting ideas to help. See, if Jesus is still dead, then we go about our daily lives without any regard to how we might worship God through our work, rest, and play. If Jesus is alive, though, we want to serve him in everything we do, every hour of every day. If Jesus is still dead, then the church is just a building. It's just a building, and we show up at Christmas and Easter and maybe when we're in trouble. If he's alive, though, then the church is God's people. It's God's people right here. Not a duty we perform, but our closest, most dearly loved family. And we long to be with them as often as possible. 
If Jesus is dead, then all of our sin remains undealt with. And we just continue to live with huge amounts of guilt, addiction patterns, avoidance, and brokenness. But if Jesus is alive, we live at peace, friends, experiencing healing and freedom, knowing that we are forgiven of our sins. If Jesus is still dead, then we constantly ask, what's in it for me, God? What's in it for me? If Jesus is alive, though, we constantly ask, what can I do for you, Lord? If Jesus is still dead, then we make financial security and the accumulation of wealth our number one goal in life. If Jesus is alive, though, we make heavenly security and eternal wealth our life's goal. If Jesus is dead, our goal for our kids is safety and the best education possible in hopes that they can succeed in life. If Jesus is alive, though, our number one goal is that they know and love the risen, living God all the days of their life and whatever the cost. If Jesus is dead, we wear busyness like a badge, bragging about the way we can juggle far too much on our calendar to the exclusion of loving God and our neighbor. If Jesus is alive, though, we're not defined by what we do, but by whose we are. If Jesus is dead, then we constantly worry about our life expectancy and we spend time and money on trying to delay the inevitable. If Jesus is alive, though, we know that the inevitable, in other words, death, isn't the end. And that our life expectancy is just a dot on a vast and wonderfully long timeline. If Jesus is dead, we consume ourselves with the latest news, entertainment, social media, sports, fashions and fads. If Jesus is alive, those things are okay still, but we consume ourselves with knowing and following him. If Jesus is dead, we send up the occasional prayer to a distant God who may or may not be there. If he's alive, we're constantly in prayer to the God we know is with us and for us and who has the power to perform miracles today. If Jesus is dead, we live like we're dying, and we are. If Jesus is alive, we live like, well, we live like we're alive. We're alive and we are. We have joy, real and lasting joy. Friends, are you living as if Jesus is alive? Or are you living as if he's dead? Because he's alive. And he's wondering when you're going to notice. An old church father called Irenaeus once said, The glory of God is man fully alive. I love that. The glory of God is man or woman fully alive. When we live like he's alive, which he is, we become alive. But not just that, we are his glory. So today, will you stop living in denial? Will you stop seeking the living among the dead? And will you repent of your sin? And will you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and begin to live? This is the life you were created to live, a life of love, serving the one who loves you and who died and rose again, that you might truly live. This Easter and the year ahead, don't just pay lip service to Jesus. Follow him and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious day, this resurrection day. Lord Jesus, would you help us to live no longer in denial of the reality of the resurrection? Whether we do not know you or whether we do, would you help us to choose to follow you each and every day of our lives, repenting of the sin that separates us from you and choosing to put our trust in you and live life to the full beginning today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.